0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in our series, Exodus. The book of Exodus establishes a familiar setup, hearkening back to Genesis, echoing its language and ideas, a people in a place, blessed to flourish, until an antagonist steps in, and a test begins. Or is it a trap? Exodus is the second book of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, the first in a library of writings that together make what we call the Bible. Now, at the end of Genesis, which if you don't know is the first book of the Hebrew Scriptures, we read this, "...with the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were seventy in all." And then, at the beginning of Exodus... The book that follows Genesis, we read the descendants of Jacob, numbered 70, and all Joseph was already in Egypt. So it's the same story carrying on, but it's more than that. In Genesis chapter 1, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Then in Exodus chapter 1, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So it's the same story from a different angle, and the author means for you to recognize that symmetry. The blessing of fruitful multiplication in Genesis has now come to pass in Exodus. At the beginning of Genesis, there's an ominous introduction. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. So God's people are in a place, blessed to flourish, and in steps, an antagonist with a clever plan to disrupt things. Then at the beginning of Exodus, an ominous introduction. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have come, become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. Or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. God's people, in a place, blessed to flourish, and in steps an antagonist with a clever plan to disrupt things. And what happens in both stories is that the antagonist becomes eventually a cruel oppressor of God's people. As the story goes, the oppressor, the enemy, or the serpent, here in Exodus he enacts three unique plans to disrupt God's blessing of fruition and to bring death and destruction over God's plan and God's people. His first plan, enslave them. Look at Exodus chapter 1, beginning with verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses, the store cities for Pharaoh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So plan A achieved uh, or doesn't achieve the desired effect. So plan B. Genocide. If you can't stop them with slave labor, stop them with genocide. Verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Verse 19. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. They give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So plan B, like plan A, fails. Now, plan C. How do you stop them from multiplying? Throw them in the river. Verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, a man of the tribe of levi married a levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son when she saw that he was a fine child she hid him for 3 months but when she could hide him no longer she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch now a uh, footnote here the hebrew word that my bible translates as basket is teva, which shows up in only 2 stories in the hebrew scriptures here and then prior to this in genesis uh, chapter 6 through 8 which If you know, is the story of Noah, the ark, the whole thing. So in both cases, the word means ark. And notice it's the same language here that it was in Genesis. She covers the teva, or the ark, with tar and pitch, just like Noah. And God will use this ark to protect his chosen people from the waters that would otherwise destroy them. So it's a literary flashback, powerful symbolism. And look at the rest of verse 3. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. So, little baby Moses passes through the water and reeds to salvation, just as he will lead his people through the sea of reeds later on in the story in kind of one of the penultimate, most powerful scenes at all. That's a literary flash forward. Again, powerful symbolism, both in a single line that to the untrained eye looks like little more than extraneous detail. But again, the, li- uh, the Bible is a literary masterpiece. And the story goes on. Verse 4 His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. So the story goes, God's people in a place, God's plan, multiplication, fruitfulness, fruition, fill the earth and subdue it, and then enter the snake, the antagonist, the the ruiner, the oppressor who enslaves God's people, who wants to destroy God's plan and God's people. And the snake in both stories comes to the women of God's family with an opportunity to betray God on behalf of the serpent. In the first story, eat the fruit. In the second story, slaughter the newborn babies, the, the little boys in this case. One story demonstrates what happens when the trap is set, the bait is taken, and the consequences, as you know, are disastrous, fractured relationship, and terror, and shame, and cursing, and death. And then, In Exodus, the test sort of reprises itself, and it is, after all, a test. Testing is a recurring motif throughout the Bible story. It starts with the whole tree thing. Eat from any tree you want, God tells the first humans, except this one. Look, God tells them, I'll give you what you need, everything you need, trust me, and there's life in said trust. To distrust is nothing less than death. And God steps back and says, let's see what they do, a test. And testing, you might say to yourself, seems like an unfair thing for God to do, knowing that we're finite and fallible and He isn't, knowing that we could fail. It feels almost like a trap, but a test is not a trap. Ten years ago, I was sitting with a friend of mine who was a Bible teacher that had been training me to teach the Bible. Uh, We were on 13th Street in the Pearl District of Portland, Oregon, having coffee. Now, this friend of mine, like many uh, people strange to me, loves the sun. So when the sun was out, he always wanted to sit outside and drink coffee, much to my chagrin, but you you know, first shall be last and all that, so sure, I'll sit outside. And there we sat. Him smiling, me squinting and scowling, and this guy also happened to be the lead pastor of a church where I worked as the videographer, and he asked me, would you, Josh, consider teaching at a Sunday gathering in a few weeks? Now, I know some of you have heard this story before, but I should tell you, I had never taught at a Sunday gathering. I wasn't a pastor or a teacher at all. I was the video guy, and there were lots of people at this church a mega amount, you might say. The bar bar for teaching at our church was pretty dang high, and there was more than one Sunday gathering, so several opportunities to blow it, each with hundreds of people as witnesses. But from where I sat in my story, it wasn't just my friend asking me. It was, but it felt like more than that. It felt as if God was inviting me. You know, the kind of moment I'm getting at where it feels like more than just an ordinary thing, the, the Spirit's direction over my life, the work that I'd been doing, the things that I'd been saying um, and, and to God and praying for with God. So I told him, okay, I will give it a try. I want to do it. He gave me a text from which to teach. It was in the Gospel of Matthew. He gave me a little bit of direction. And for the next few weeks, I spent every free minute I had working on this dang thing. I still had a full-time job to do, so I'd come home from work and go straight to my teaching. When I had a draft, I practiced on my wife, Abby, and then she heard the second draft, and then the third draft, and the fourth draft. And this is not an exaggeration. We had both memorized it by the end of this thing. I kept a, a journal during my work, and before I stepped on stage, that uh, fateful Sunday, I had practiced the sermon 36 times. That was the number in total. That's the actual documented number. I looked it up for the sake of this teaching. Now, the day before it was going to happen, that Saturday, Abby and I, and technically our son back, he was in utero at the time, we drove to the coast, we parked our car on the beach, and we sat in the open trunk looking out at the ocean, and I felt that evening the weight of the test. I was nervous, but not anxious. I felt intimidated, but not terrified. I could sense that maybe this was a defining moment or an important moment, at least in my life. And I had a role to play in it. There was something at stake. There was a chance. I believed that God had asked me to do something and that he was helping me, but he wasn't going to just puppeteer me and do it for me. So anyway did the teaching. It probably wasn't very good, but it was passable, so I did it some more, yada, yada, yada. Here we are. And at the time, I was so preoccupied with doing the best that I could do that I didn't really think about what was at stake for my friend uh, and the role that he played in the whole thing, the one who asked me to teach in the first place. Now, don't get me wrong. I was, and still am, truly grateful But this guy, lead pastor of a megachurch, asked the video guy with zero experience to teach Bible one Sunday. I'm sure that there were uh, conversations about this behind the scenes to which I was not privy. Now, obviously, he could have just done it himself and done an infinitely better job, but he wanted to test me, to test my resolve, to test my potential, and to afford me the opportunity to wade deeper into the waters of what he believed could be God's call over my life. And it turns out he was right. But... We didn't know that for sure at the time. He could have been wrong. I could have squandered the opportunity to prepare and totally fumbled the teaching, or maybe I could have really, really tried my best, and I just learned in the process that it's just not my thing. And in either event, he would have suffered the consequences of my failure as well. The test was an opportunity to do something big, to see if I could, and to see if I would. Around the same season, As that test, another friend of mine was going through a painful season at the same church. He had been hurt. He had become frustrated and, and quite frankly, embittered. And this is someone with whom I'd spent a lot of time and who knew a lot about me and vice versa. He offered an informal counter-invitation over many conversations and venting sections. Come join me in my anger against those that I believe have wronged me. Now, many of you, you, I know, understand exactly what I mean by this conversation under the pretense of honest vulnerability, at least at first, kind of in the name of venting, a friend needing to talk about how they feel about being hurt by the church and the people in it, it would quickly devolve, becoming eventually malicious, gossip, slander, And it would become increasingly clear that this person is no longer a friend in need of a listening ear, that they were no longer a friend who, even though they were in pain, were seeking the best of everyone involved and honoring and caring for those with whom they had disagreement. It stopped being that and became something else. They'd become the one wanting badly to infect others with their anger and resentment, to fan whatever spark of discontent they could find, into a flame, aren't these people inept, and maybe even they're terrible, and really isn't the whole thing rotten to the core? So, he would say, whose side are you on? And my angry friend, he would tell me, this isn't all it's cracked up to be. Don't fall for it. Don't you want to bail out with me?" And look, even then, as like the video guy at a huge church, I was well aware that our church was by no means perfect, like every church, that our leadership was by no means perfect, and that conflict was complex, and there's always more than one side and more than one story, all that. But in those conversations with my angry friend, there was a place we could not meet. It wasn't like a a shrewd career move on my part. I didn't like join him in leaving because I really wanted to play it cool until I got my big shot and my big chance to teach. I didn't even know that that was something that was going to happen. But I could see that my friend, though I loved him and empathized with his pain, absolutely, he had become, I believe, clouded by it. His hurt was very real, don't get me wrong, but his assessment of that hurt and the people and the situations around it were not. It It just wasn't true. A test is an honest opportunity to demonstrate faithfulness. A trap is a deception. One friend had, I believe, my best interest in mind with the test. The other did not. There are tests and there are traps. So here in the beginning of the Bible story, we have God's people, God's plan, multiplication, fruitfulness, fill the earth and subdue it, and then enter the snake the ruiner, the oppressor who enslaves God's people. And the snake, he comes to women of God's family with an opportunity to betray God on behalf of the serpent, eat the fruit. Or in this story, slaughter the newborn boys one story demonstrates what happens when the trap is set, the bait is taken, the consequences are disastrous. Again, fractured relationship and terror, shame, cursing, and death. And then in Exodus, when the test reprises itself, these women, the Hebrew midwives, act as what um, Dr. Tim Mackey at the Bible Project calls mini anti-Eves. They're redeemed Eve figures. The deceiver comes to the female characters with the same test, and we, the reader, are given the opportunity to see what happens when, unlike the story in Genesis 3, the humans pass the test and escape the trap. And... As an aside, because it's hilarious in the story, these ladies are as as punk rock as it gets. They're given this unthinkably heinous decree by the most powerful figure in their entire world, and they just straight up refuse to do it. And then when they're confronted by it, they explain their disobedience by insulting him. (laughs) Why didn't you kill the babies, like I said? And they say, because Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women. They get stuff done. You guys take forever. We deliver our babies efficiently. So awesome. So they rebel against the snake rather than rebelling against God. The snake applies further pressure, sets more traps, drown the babies in the Nile. But the women persist in defying him. Moses is placed in the ark that rescues him from the engulfing waters of doom, and he passes through the reeds, and so begins the ark of one of the Bible's most significant figures of redemption. Obedience to Yahweh Rebellion against the snake leads to redemption in the Bible's story. So, other than the simple fact that Eve was disobedient and the Hebrew wives weren't, what makes the difference in these stories? Is there some clue in the text as to what went right when the other story went wrong? Look again. When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby's a boy, kill him. If it's a boy, girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. The midwives, however, feared God. Now, I'm about to do something I don't ordinarily do in my teachings and speak to a complex theological issue while first admitting to you guys that I don't have a sophisticated theological answer, not one I borrowed from people smarter than me and not one of my own design, and not for lack of trying. What is the fear of God? If you've spent any time around the church and the Bible, you've probably heard that phrase. Even in popular culture, it's used a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman or a God-fearing family What is perhaps the most famous appearance in the scriptures? The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, for years of my discipleship to Jesus, this concept really irked me. Like, not a crisis of faith type of thing, just the obvious dilemma, and that's from 1 John. On another page in the same Bible, there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And more than that, one of the most, if not the most, repeated command or phrase in general in the entire Bible is, I'm sure some of you know, don't be afraid. So what do you do with that? And before you ask, yes, if you go poking around in your concordance and your lexicon, you'll find that in both cases, fear just seems to mean Fear. I wish that there was an escape hatch there, but there doesn't seem to be. So here's where I'm at, and here's where we're going with all this. In both cases, fear means fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Hebrew midwives feared God, and perfect love casts out fear. So maybe there's just more than one way to be afraid one is good and one's bad. When I was younger, a close friend of mine grew up with an abusive, alcoholic father. Now, this friend of mine wasn't terribly forthcoming about it, but over the years, in a moment moment or two of uncharacteristic vulnerability, he had shared a small handful of horror stories about being terrorized by his drunk dad. His parents divorced. He drifted back and forth between his mom's house and his dad's house, and he learned to dread the latter. And the thing is, I had met the dad, and he seemed to me like a delightful dude. He was charming, he was friendly, he was funny, but apparently all that changed when he drank. And my friend learned to live in terror of his dad's house, his dad's drinking, and his dad himself. He was afraid in a way no child is meant to fear their father. Now, my dad was by no means a perfect man, but he was a good dad. He was also a southern man raising kids in the 80s, so... He was pretty big on discipline. He didn't mess around when it came to disobedience. He suffered no fools, as it were. Now, parents, I understand now from experience, have their own unique values and sense of propriety, what bothers them, what doesn't, threshold of tolerance for misbehavior, all that kind of stuff. I raised my first two kids to love dinosaurs and paleontology and monster movies. And it worked. It stuck. It turns out that you can indoctrinate these things. You should try it. It's really fun. Now, I know that little boys can be stereotypically drawn to, like, trucks and cartoons that do construction work and stuff like that, but selfishly, none of that speaks to me, so we just never allowed any of it in our house, you know? Now, I mean this as absolutely no offense to any other parents in the room or the kids, but even though our kids, you know, they watch, like, Pixar movies or whatever, like so many other children, we have never allowed the movie Cars to play under our roof, dang it, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just because it's a movie about talking cars, but it's really bad. Now, we have this third kid, and uh, he's somehow all about cars. Just before I came on stage, I took a peek into the nursery to see how he's doing, and I kid you not, this is not in my notes, I saw him crying, and then Jessica Kingray rolled a little car in front of him. He's like, eh, eh, Mm. (laughs) just like that. We, we, actual real life cars too. This morning he was out running back before the yard. A car goes by. He's like, call, 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 call. Just like that. I don't know where it came from. I don't know why. Now, my oldest son, Beck, and I, I'm not making this up. We actually strategize how to fix this. We're sitting together. We make plans. We're like, okay, we need to show him this dinosaur movie. Here, you put this stuffed dinosaur into his crib, and then later we'll talk to him. So don't judge me. Everybody, parents different. Now, <laughs> Uh, the other day I started to picture myself as like this dad finding a, a toy car in young Arlo's room and being like, where did you get this? You know, not in my house. We talked about this. Anyway, unique values. Now, my dad was huge on manners. This is a Southern thing anyway, but particularly with this guy, he was big on manners, timeliness, hospitality, and kids speaking to adults with respect. Now, he wasn't like a drill sergeant or anything, and he was informal and funny and affectionate, and we could joke around and have fun. But when he was serious, he expected an appropriately serious response. And when we were being corrected, firing back or responding with sarcasm, you know, talk back, is a very serious offense. Now, other kids I knew, their parents didn't have those same values. So I'd go to their houses and I'd hear these little arguments between kids and adults, kids telling their dad to shut up or like rolling their eyes at him or whatever. And it was absolutely terrifying to me. (laughs) And I remember telling a kid once that I would be afraid to talk to my dad the way that he talked to his. And this kid kind of made fun of me and said, oh, you're scared of your dad? How sad is that? And I remember wondering then when he said it, oh, am I? Sort of, I guess, in a certain sense anyway. Now, Again, my dad wasn't perfect, but I never experienced any fear that he would deliberately do me any harm. And I took for granted that it was his job to look after me and that he would do it. But my dad was one of the primary authorities in my life. My parents called the shots, not me. And I knew that if I spurned his authority and trampled his values, the consequences would be serious. And that did imbue me with a certain kind of fear. So, if my young friend who had been tragically abused by his father asked me, are you, like me, afraid of your dad? I would have answered, no, I am not. Perfect love casts out fear. But under different circumstances, when I was being invited by other friends into disobedience and I hesitated, knowing the consequences if I were caught and held responsible, they'd ask me, What, are you afraid of your dad? I'd say, Heck yes, I am afraid of my dad. Are you nuts? This is the great both and at the heart of a healthy theology of God. Our deacon of hospitality, Katie Van Dalma, she reminded me as I sent these notes out this morning, that of that beloved exchange in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which, you know, Susan Pevensey, she, she learns that Aslan is a great lion for the first time. And she asked to be reassured, saying, is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver famously answers, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is not our equal. He's not our peer. And yes, God chooses to come near to us with intimacy and affection and gentle kindness. He is father and he is friend. In Jesus, God empties himself of his divine attributes in perfect love to lay down his life for the sake of his beloved. But he doesn't stop being fundamentally God. And God is infinite cosmic perfection, and He made all this up. He knows how life and the universe work best, not us. And that's good news, not bad news. And the older I get and the longer I follow Jesus, the more comfortable I become in allowing the complex reality to exist in the same place. God is the compassionate, gracious, good Father, and part of His goodness is that He does not mess around with evil. A good father does not placate evil. He is not permissive with sin, not spineless and lazy with discipline. And just as it is with good earthly fathers, God's discipline and justice protect us from the natural consequences of our own wrongdoing. God is gracious. He's a good father, but he means business. You don't mess with God. I think of Paul's words in Galatians, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And I believe with all my heart that God is my loving Father and my friend, I do not cower before God, but I bow before Him in adoration and open my arms to Him in affection. I'm not stricken with terror before some cruel, capricious, unknowable deity. I sing and worship before the God who is perfect love. And because He is perfect love, I believe this God does not mess around with evil. I am afraid, filled with awe and reverence at the cosmic magnitude of God and of the terrible consequences for myself and those I love if I disobey his good and gracious reign. So when I'm invited into disobedience against God, if I tremble and if someone were to ask, what, are you afraid of God? Heck yes, I am afraid of God. And the fear, that fear, rightly held, can enable me to pass the test. Not one test, but lots and lots of tests. So to end tonight, there's always a test. Some of them seem, even as they come, momentous, like that exchange I had with a friend over coffee, will you consider teaching on a Sunday? defining moments in our lives. And sometimes we realize as they come, and sometimes we only realize after the fact. An invitation deeper into your calling and your identity, into the next dimension of faithfulness to God, defining moments in your life. But other tests seem smaller, fleeting, a dime a dozen. Will you sleep in, or will you get up to be with the Spirit of Jesus? Will you spend your entire paycheck on yourself, and your wants and needs, or will you practice radical generosity? Will you flake out of this commitment? Will you join in the gossip? Will you take another drink? Will you visit that website? The tests are not traps set by God to trick and destroy, but the natural consequences of our God-given freedom. The reality of the enemy who sets out to deceive us and the opportunity to walk headlong into the refining fire of greater faithfulness. So if this story is our story, like we said last week, and we'll say throughout the story of Exodus, then I think a question that's appropriate for us to ask this evening is, what's the test right now in your life, in the life of your family, your community? What is the test before you? What is the Invitation to greater faithfulness. Where is the trap? And what does it mean for you in this season to fear God in order to walk in obedience and pass the test? Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to come and speak and to clarify those questions for us. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancitychurch. You can support Vancity financially at vancitychurch/give.